Hey, Retention Pros. I'm Noah Rahim Zadeh and I lead partnerships here at Malomo. I'm super pumped to continue to chat with ecosystem experts alongside Mariah, who you all already know and love. Say hi, Mariah. Hey, everyone. As you probably know, Retention Chronicles likes to bring in some of the best retention-focused brands in the Shopify ecosystem. But we don't just feature brands. We also feature some great thought leaders in the Shopify ecosystem that serve brands. And because we always want these conversations to be fun, you'll hear us talk with our guests about what they're excited about and what's helped them get to where they are today. We hope you'll stick around to learn and laugh with us. Retention Chronicles is sponsored by Malomo, a shipment and order tracking platform improving the post-purchase experience. Be sure to subscribe and check out all of our episodes at gomalomo.com. Awesome. Uh, very, very excited for this episode. We've got Eric Huberman here, uh, founder and CEO of Hawk Media, one of the premier agencies in the in the D2C Shopify space. Um, they've been a partner of ours even before I started here, uh, leading partnerships at Malomo, Eric, I think. So uh, it's been a long time coming probably and really <laughs> excited to, ha- to have you on now. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. For carving out some time. Absolutely. Um, so before we dive into the shop talk side of things, we like to start on a personal note. One, uh, I didn't ask you this before we started recording, uh, little background, where are you dialing in from? And also one or two things that you're excited about in your personal life. Um, yeah, I'm dialing in from Santa Monica. (laughs) Probably the most thing I'm excited about is I'm a new dad. So Having a blast there. Congrats. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! I didn't say probably. Absolutely, <laughs> it's, it's awesome. So, yeah, it's an it's an easy, quick answer. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Congrats, man. Uh, How when, old now? How yeah, old? six months. Six wow. months. Awesome. Yeah. Is that your first? Yes. Okay. So, how's it going? New day. It's awesome. It's really fun. Um, yeah. Honestly, being a dad is all the responsibility and like the sort of like pragmatic part of it is exactly what I thought it was. Like if we've watched enough movies with babies in it, like there people do a pretty good job of like, yeah, you're going to be up. You're going to, you know, they're going to wake you up in the middle of the night. They're going to, you're going to change a lot of diapers. So like people tell me like, Oh, you have no idea what you're getting into. It's like, if you pay attention, you kind of know what you're getting into, but <laughs> the emotional side of it is amazing. Like the whole, you've never thought you could love something like that. Like that, that part is really cool. Cause that you can't expect and I'd say the one surprise that's really fun is I didn't realize that like people were born with their personalities. Like I look, I have a one-year-old niece. She turns one tomorrow, actually. And between my niece and my daughter now, I'm like, y'all are so different from the start. And it has <laughs> nothing to do with what I've done because I haven't done anything yet. Right. Like, it's crazy how much your personality is there from the beginning. And I never knew that. And then you talk to parents and they're like, oh, yeah, from the beginning, it's there. But it's like, I feel like that's not talked about a lot. That's interesting. I don't, I feel like I haven't heard that. Mariah. Yeah. So I feel like just from my parents, cause my siblings and I are also different. Like, I feel like for each, like, I feel like since I can remember my parents would always be like, my sister is exactly like my dad's personality. I'm exactly like my mom's personality. And then my younger brother is like pretty much equal between the two. <laughs> so it is, it is funny though. Um, yeah. To think about like temperament and personality when you're growing up and then how it like, because I think 
per- certain aspects like get like exemplified or like amplified or like toned yep. down oh yeah i'm sure it shifts up, of course for sure but, like you still have like your core core yep. personality yeah it's really mm-hmm. interesting agreed so that that's been fun though it's really fun to see like again like we all think we have so much control over what happens and then you realize like oh wow my my daughter's already there like it's like (laughs) this had nothing to do with like you know the way I raised her and the way I talked to her like there's none of that yet and she's got a personality it's fun that's awesome hopefully that's a little like um gives you a little bit of peace where it's like oh they're you know they're gonna be who they're gonna be (laughs) well yeah thankfully super happy but at the same time that lack of control it's like well even though I've like read parenting books and I've thought that I had this good idea how to do it am I really gonna be able to affect much of how this turns out (laughs) yeah a little bit of like release of the control too that's completely understandable well, congrats again, man. That is, that is awesome. What, uh, from like a work, you know, balance perspective, uh, how has that been? You're obviously like really, really involved in the business uh, yeah. still, and always out there doing a bunch of different things at the same time. So, um, you know, did you get to take some time off and how are you balancing time? No, off? I mean, that it was funny. I, I actually went to, and I blocked off my calendar and a mentor of mine, a friend of mine was, uh, I was telling him I was taking paternity leave and he started laughing because like, you think you're going to get paternity leave as a business. So there's a guy that's built a bunch of big businesses and has two now grown kids. He's like, <laughs> yeah, okay. Like it's something that like societally we've talked a lot about, like paternity leave wasn't even a thing, you know, until recently and we give it, but it's like, as a business owner, it's probably not a thing. Like you can't really just check out. So, and honestly, you're generally doing yourself more harm than good. And to be blunt, like first couple months as a dad, like you can be there to support but you're, if you take time off, you're kind of just sitting around a lot and like the baby sleeps a lot. So, you know, I think that there's, uh, yeah, I, so I ended up like, I thought I was going to, I took like a few days off to recover from like the actual delivery in the first few days is crazy. But then it was like, all right, well I'm here now. What? And so, and I've been super proactive, but the cool thing is we both, my wife and I work from home. So like, you know, I played with her for five minutes before jumping on this podcast because I had a five, I ended a call five minutes early. So I get way more time with her than most normal working people, even though I'm grinding. And then the only other thing that's changed, I travel a ton for work. I'm speaking at a ton of conferences and meetings and all that. Uh, and I just don't dilly-dally. Like I literally went to Barcelona for the day last week, went had some meetings, spoke wow. at a conference, flew back. And it was perfect because the flight there, I slept like it was my night, woke up, had some dinner, da da da. Did the thing. Went to sleep. Woke up. Did all my work. Stayed up all night. Which, you know, I had a six a.m. flight back, which is nine p.m. Pacific. So jumped on the plane. Went to sleep. Woke up back in L.A. And I basically, you know, I missed a morning. So it wasn't that crazy. And so it's like I can go do those. And honestly, I was fine. So like you can go do those things. I'm going to. I'm speaking at South by on Sunday, and I'm flying in Saturday night. Speaking Sunday morning. Hanging out Sunday afternoon. Flying back Sunday night. So. I'm just being a little more intentional with how I am out, but still keeping up with the same pace. So it's kind of like just you find new efficiency. Cool. Yeah, that's funny. You probably you probably lose the ability to extend the work trips with the with yeah. the little one. Um, when it's but- it's it's not even the ability; it's the desire. Honestly, like, yeah, sure, could, would I be fine if I wanted to stay or had a reason to stay? Yeah, but you know, it's the same thing. Like I was a hobby junkie before becoming a dad. I got my pilot's license last year. I mountain bike and snowboard and surf and do all these things. I've done uh, snowboarding's my top. So I still have done a decent amount of that in the winter. But like, other than that, I've done like none of it because 
it's either go fly an airplane or hang out with my daughter, hang out with my daughter. Sure. <laughs> but it's yeah. choice. I think that's the important part. A lot of people yeah. say like, oh, your life's over when you have kids. It's like, well, if that's how you look at it. But yeah. like, <laughs> I feel like that's a good lesson, like for almost anything. Not yeah, just exactly. Kids, like it's perception, right? Yep, exactly. Cool. Um, all right, let's get into, let's get into Hawk. Um, yeah. Be remiss not to talk about the founding story, like what, what you were doing yep. before and what led you to the founding of Hawk. I think yep. most of our listeners will be familiar. If you're listening and you're not, definitely check out Hawk Media out there. Huge yeah. players in the space. And, you know, the clients that we share together, Eric, have been tremendously su- successful um, kind of a one plus one equals three situation, but yep. we'll get to that. Let's, let's start with, uh, let's start with the beginning. Yeah. Um, well, I'm trying to think of how far to go back. I'll, I'll go back just college year. I got out of college in 2008, went into real estate one week before Lehman brothers went bankrupt. Exactly. And so wow. made 350 bucks that year, about six oh months into goodness. that you're living in LA. So for those that don't know LA prices, like $350 does not pay the rent for a year uh, or the month. <laughs> More the week. Right. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, I started, I went into a little debt, was scrambling to figure out what I was going to do. Cause that was my plan for a while. Um, and I ended up launching an online music company with, uh, a friend's dad that reached out to me and said, Hey, I think there's a way to help musicians, you know, make money here. Um, and independent artists understand how to build a business around it. So why don't we try building a platform? I designed it, built it, He raised a million dollars for us in 2009, which was crazy. I was 22 and ended up building that out, running it for two years, getting 15,000 musicians on the platform, learning some different hacks, like sort of growth hacking before there was growth hacking. I figured out how to kind of hack Craigslist to get a ton of free advertisement. And uh, we did that. And and two years in, I realized it was never going to be that big of a business. The lesson there was uh, a target customer that has no money might not be the best target customer. Uh, independent artists aren't notoriously rolling in dough. And if I didn't make them famous, it was 50 bucks a month for like, basically it was like masterclass for music business at 50 bucks a month. And like these musicians would come in for like a month and be like, I'm not famous yet and quit. And it turned out I, and I did become a little jaded because it turned out that like 90% of struggling artists out there are struggling because they don't want to work. They use music music as an excuse like, oh, well, I'm just a struggling artist. It's like, no, you're just a lazy artist. Sorry. (laughs) 10% are awesome and work hard and make it happen. And if you're that 10%, you can make a living as a musician. You just got to work like in any other industry. And a lot of the people that are attracted to that industry don't want to put in the work. They just want to play music. And so that learn that, hired a CEO to take it over to run it because it was a profitable business. And then over the next two and a half years, I built and sold two different e-commerce companies. One was a t-shirt subscription company called Swag of the Month. I uh, sold that in 2012 and then built Ellie, an activewear brand that still exists and sold that in 2013. So it was a year project, sold it to Bally Total Fitness and then uh, didn't know what I wanted to do next. So I started advising and consulting for a bunch of brands, um, was working with the BioTotal Fitness, the buyers there, but then I, they wanted to hire me and I said, no. So I consulted and then I started getting hit up by other people that had seen what I had done with those two businesses. So I was consulting for about eight different companies. All of a sudden I was 26 um, and I was making great money as a consultant at 26 years old and going like, and nothing, I, like I was used to paying myself minimum wage in my startup. So I was like, this is crazy. Like people spend a lot of money on this stuff, but I got it. But I also understood why, like the amount of money they were investing, like the, to pay me what they were paying me 
like the amount of leverage I could give them on their money to like make way more. It was like, it was a no brainer. It didn't matter. It wasn't about like what my time was worth for, to me, it was about what that outcome was worth to them. And so I started to understand that a little more. And then, uh, but over the course of like six months, I was advising for all these companies. And when I try to help them like execute, I ran into the, the, the same challenge over and over again. Like they either wanted to hire in-house which was never cost effective. That's if they could find and attract talent. And like that, I realized like my first big client was a $450 million a year activewear manufacturer. Huge business, wanted to go digital. I called a bunch of friends to go work for them. And they're like, you mean in commerce, like East LA? Like, I'm not going there. Like, that's not gonna happen. So I'm like, this is a great business, hyper profitable, bootstrapped, like not a venture fund backed company that might be gone in a year. They're willing to pay a huge amount of money for these people, pay a premium, and no one will work there. I'm like, okay, so there's a problem with talent here. So then you go to agencies. Well, 99% of agencies out there have no idea what they're doing. It's so easy to start an agency. How many coaches out there tell everyone to start their agency? You can get to 10 grand a month and make 120 grand a year easily. You just need three clients and then all the math that they do. And it's like what they real what you realize is again, 99% of people that start agencies have no idea what the hell they're doing in building a business or doing marketing. They just sell services. And so you run into a lot of those, and then you start running into a few that are good but they tend to quickly get expensive, want long contracts, high minimums, something that makes them hard to work with. And so I just got sick of it. I was like, why can't we have an agency that's the best at what they do, but easy to work with? Like, why doesn't that exist? And that's what we started to create. So I hired seven people, each with their own expertise, like a Facebook marketer, an email marketer, a web designer, a fractional CMO, et cetera. Went back to these companies and said, hey, everything's a la carte, month to month, cheaper than hiring in a house, but we basically will spin up what you need when you need it and Evan flows your needs change. And we'll do all the work on the upfront. Like we'll do a free audit, look at what the needs are and go from there. And so that's how we started. Fast forward, it's been nine years, 250 people later, we've grown about 4,500 brands at this point successfully. And uh, yeah, continue to grow, continue to build it out. And through that, we built a venture fund. We started angel investing in some of the tools we used. Then we uh, raised our first fund, invested in 18 different marketing tech and e-commerce tech companies. Um, and then uh, a year ago, raised our second fund. We raised 25 of 50 million. Um, wow. So first fund was 5 million. Second one will be 50. Uh, it's been obviously an interesting time to raise capital, but we're thankfully we we could stop at 25. We just really want to execute on this thesis we had. Um, and so, yeah, we continue to build that out. And we're in, for those in e-commerce, we're in Tapcart and Clavio and Postscript and Faring and Cord and Yaguara and I mean the list Superfiliate. Uh, the list goes on in terms of like the Shopify ecosystem is a big part, and then a lot of other cool companies, Icon Source, Instramatic, Wevo, etc. Interesting. Wow, what a what a story. what a background. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wild. I I want to take a step back and ask what so you from the music platform like. What made you decide to go into building an e-commerce brand? So that was funny. Um, it was, I knew I had to get out of that music business. It wasn't ever going to go anywhere. Oh, like literally at 24 years old, I was like, this isn't going to pay for my kids to go to college. I just had my first, I'm 36. Like this is a little bit of foresight, but I was like, this isn't going to like set me up for life. This is just going to like pay my bills as a 24 year old. And that's not good because there's no future in that. And so I needed to get out. Um, and I was yeah, I was sitting on the couch with a friend of mine and it was like, we were talking about uh, t-shirts and I was like, what if we just, uh, what, like, I hate shopping. Like, why can't someone just send me a t-shirt once a month just so I keep my wardrobe updated? It's just, they pick out for me based on like my 
personal aesthetic or style. And that's what we was like, well, I had a t-shirt business, so I can help us get t-shirts. And I was like, well, I have a friend that could build a website. And I just got a college buddy to build like a one page lander that went to PayPal. Like that's how it started. But then I, I put this in my book and it's actually all of the one star reviews on my book are all about this line because people like hate the ethics of it, but it happened. So here we are. Um, I was told that, you know, the best way to get news is to write the article based on what the publication generally writes about this. A friend of mine was giving me this coaching and he's like, like TechCrunch, if you tell them they rate, that you raised money, they'll write about anything. Like, interesting. So I just sent TechCrunch an email to claiming that I raised a hundred grand from which at that time, like any fundraising was cool. hundred grand. Now I don't think they like, they would definitely ignore me, but I was like, we raised a hundred grand for swag of the month. And they literally within 15 minutes, I got a call from Josh Constein, who was the editor at large there until he recently left for VC, but he was there for a long time called me directly on my cell phone. I was like, hey, this is Josh from TechCrunch. Want to get some questions. Within an hour, we were live on the homepage of TechCrunch, <laughs> which guess what? TechCrunch readers buy t-shirts. So we got, a, I think it was like 1,200 customers immediately, like in, a, you know, two hours. Oh we're like, God. all right, well, I guess we have a business. <laughs> and that's, you know, and we had already been earlier that week, we got into Thrillist, which at the time was a men's publication, we got into Urban Daddy, and then we ended up in Maxim and Huffington Post and Wall Street Journal. And it just like the press, that was when press, like now press doesn't really do much for customer acquisition. Back then it really did. Yeah. And press was, you know, it was a, like media in general was a little more concentrated. So like if you got into a big publication, everybody was reading it. Now it's so disparate. You, those big PR hits don't do very much. Yeah. Like you mentioned my Forbes article. I I really wonder how many people actually read that. You put, you found it because you were looking up or you yeah. saw me post about it. Yeah. But like, it, I love putting that stuff out, but it's more of a middle of the funnel thing. Like we don't get a ton of awareness out of that. Totally. Well, I think too, this is not to go off on a tangent, but it's almost impossible to ever measure the attribution from something like that too. So it's like- Unless you're doing nothing else. Right, yeah. <laughs> and it was easy. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, did you ever get any, did you ever get any blowback for the TechCrunch piece? No, because I didn't admit it until it was, you know, decades yeah. in <laughs> well, view. Yeah. And I was like, hey, by the way, uh, <laughs> yeah, I literally, I put my dad's company as the investor, even though my dad did not invest. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, because then if they go double, they call them to clarify. It's like, yeah, sure. What? I'd get a phone call from my dad. I'm like, I gave you what? Yeah. <laughs> What's this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but again, that was, it was just the, the, a sign of the times. And it was, you know there's, there's a little bit of fake it till you make it. Uh, there is like, and it's, you know, it, the, the part of it is like, I've dealt with this actually with TechCrunch in the past where it's like, if you don't hit their little hooks, they won't write about you. But it's like the substance of that was still the same people. Like it wasn't that we raised a hundred grand who gives a shit. It's like, this is the cool new innovative business. Like that's why we're in the wall street journal is it was one of the first subscription e-commerce companies. So it was like, this was a new, but if I pitch them as new innovative business model, it goes over the head a lot of times. So it's like, well, we raised a hundred grand. Okay, let's write about you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like now that other people are like tuned into what you all are doing, it's like, oh, I want to be like in the know and like publish yeah. about you. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Very cool. Um, okay, getting into Hawk a little bit. Uh, I want to talk about, you know, what sort of makes Hawk unique in the Shopify space, as you know, probably even better mm -hmm. than we do. Uh, there's a new agency entrant every hour, it seems yep. like, and you've kind of talked about, you know, the vast majority don't really know what they're doing. Uh, yeah. You also talked about how you started as sort of an a la carte month-to-month -month service, which is probably unique then. I'm yeah. curious now in today's environment, what separates Hawk from the rest of the agencies in the space? 
Yeah, it's it's still the same, to be honest. It's like, as you said, like an agency, I can, anyone can start an agency. My daughter can start an agency, six months old. She could go, we could get her a website built. She have an agency and, you know, get, I don't know what her generation, I think she's generation alpha might be what it is now. I think they cycled back now. And so, you know, gen A perspective on business, we could probably launch that tomorrow and get some clients. It's that obnoxious in this space. Um, and so what separates us, I mean, the, the real answer and the non-sexy answer is, we actually do what we say we're going to do. We know what we're doing. We know how to build businesses. Like for us, I, I kind of like we, so we don't compete with WPP and Omnicom. Like the, the reason people, I just had a meeting with actually one of their teams yesterday that said this, but like the reason people hire WPP and Omnicom is you're a fortune 500 or 1000 and you don't want to get fired for the decision you make on the vendor. And no one's going to get fired for hiring one of the big five marketing firms. Like yeah. that's why. It's not that they're necessarily better. It's not necessarily that they're doing incredible work. You're just, you're a CMO that doesn't want to take a risk because the average tenure of a CMO at a Fortune 500 is 18 months. So you're like, fuck that. I'm keeping my job. I'm just going to hire someone that's tried and true. And that's why they get fired. We don't really compete with that because frankly, we don't get into that room. We're not pitching AOR of Coca-Cola against WPP. I actually don't know if we're there with WPP, but it's not my game. Um, because frankly, most of the people that end up competing in that world are people that were senior, like the creative director of w, the, one of the WPP agencies goes and starts their own, has some relationships, gets that going. That's how that happens. We started bottom up. We started with startups and then started to grow. And then we've worked now with Unilever, Nike, SD Louder. We've brought in on projects and things there, but not as the overall AOR. So like we're usually coming in and they're like, we just bought these two brands. We're trying to run them. Our AOR can't move on them fast enough. We need someone to complement that. That's where we get in on those big ones. So that's where it's like, that's not even part of the conversation. The funny thing is who we compete with is like the five person Facebook shop in someone's spare bedroom. And I frankly, like, and this is part of, this is just being transparent about our challenge. My challenge is like trying to explain to people, like you want to go work with someone to grow your business has no idea to grow their own. Like once in a while, there are agencies like that that are just getting started, that are on a ramp and they're good and you can get a good one. They they exist. I don't want to be like, but 99% of the time, it's someone that just can't keep any of their clients is why they can't grow. Nobody wants to run a five-person Facebook agency. They can tell you that as a sales pitch, but nobody's happy doing all the work and not being able to scale their business. And if they are, you're trusting someone that doesn't like scale to scale? Like... It's, it's just, that's always been crazy to me. And so, you know, for us, we figured out how to, at scale, keep the same level of service, keep the same, like, we know all the jabs of uh, larger agencies where it's like, oh, we're going to fall through the cracks. Well, no, that, that would mean our agency would suck. Like we, there's a, we're month to month. If we don't take care of you, you fire us next month. If all of my clients fire me after a month, I don't have a business. So it's about keeping, uh, you know, showing that we know how to grow. We know the roadmap. And whenever someone says, how do I bet the agencies I should work with? I'm like, find someone that's already taken someone from where you are to where you want to be. That's number one. Like that, don't be the test subject. If they've done it, do okay. it. Like, Because then they can just run a playbook. And most of marketing is sort of that baseline rinse and repeat scalable piece because if it's not it's not predictable and you can't run a business off it you need predictability in marketing about 10 percent of it is the like flash in the pan you know go viral do some big campaigns that kind of stuff but 90 percent of it is rinse and repeat like do the thing the best practices and if you're you've got a good product and you run the best practices you should be great yeah it works out so that's how we differentiate is that like, really, we don't compete with the big guys because I don't actually think they're that compelling and we don't compete. We, we don't really compete with a five. We do compete in terms of pitching to a five person Facebook shop, but I'm 
generally baffled when somebody goes and makes that decision because of, again, some pitch of like, we're not going to pay attention to them. It's like, we're here. Like you understand that's, <laughs> so that's, that's usually what the, what people try to say. And I remember being the opposite, by the way, I remember using that pitch. I remember saying like, Oh, you're going to fall in the cracks with them. Like I get the jab, but we've built a business making sure that doesn't happen. Like my emails everywhere. People can all, every one of our clients can contact me. We're, we're very open and communicative. And our mission is accessibility to great marketing. That is our mission statement. Accessibility is in our mission statement. We're all accessible. We're easy to work with. We're cost-effective, nimble, flexible, but available. And that's really important. Yeah. Awesome. I do think it's a unique perspective. And especially at Hawk being you know, the size that you've scaled it to, Eric, um, from a from a size perspective, like it, it would make sense that you would compete with the WPPs of the world, but also just the e-commerce ecosystem as it is today. Uh, I totally understand how you get the pressure more so from the people yeah. running their their shop out of their garage. Well, and there's yeah, there's you know there's and there's more of like a I'd say mid market agency level like performance agencies that there's the let's say the ten in the country that I know of that um, I'm not going to give them all plugs right now, but that we all kind of compete. But that's with those guys. If there's enough business to go around. Like there's a few good agencies in the country. There's no, I don't claim, I'm not conceited enough to think I'm the only one that's figured this out. Like there's a few, but honestly, most of the ones at our scale have sold and now they're just Dentsu or WPP or Omnicom or, or Accenture or, and so then the leadership doesn't care anymore. They got their money out like that. That changes things very quickly. Um, or they go up or, and, or they go up market. They don't want to work with small and medium businesses anymore because they're less profitable. They're harder to work with. They, once they have the credibility to get into the big guys, they don't want to deal with the small ones. So, and, you know, we have it in our mission to keep that going. And we've figured out like my end goal with this, or I shouldn't say end goal, because I think it's an always uh, ongoing goal is to be that like go-to for any business trying to grow, like that they know that we're tried and true. And like, they know that we're going to be consistent. We're going to deliver well. They don't have to, like the risk of hiring an agency can be out the window because like we can just, we, they know we're going to service them. And they, and we're, again, our costs are, effect, we're cost-effective, we're reasonable, like all those things that it's just like, this isn't a test anymore. It's like, we know Hawk is going to write the run the right process. So let's just go with that. And we have that, like we have probably 120 venture and private equity funds that use us on their entire portfolio, just because it's like, these are the guys like they, we know we, we don't have to, this doesn't have to be sort of an unknown. Let's hope that works out. We know that Hawk is going to run the right things and do the right things. And so we can kind of check that box as opposed to Again, always kind of test because I think most people in marketing fall into the shiny object problem. They're chasing the next agency, they're chasing the next hype thing. That is really dangerous. It's been yeah. waste a lot of money that way. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's the that's the old saying, like it's not time timing the market, it's time in market. It's the same yeah. thing for you know your relationship with your agency. If you're bouncing yeah. around every six months, they don't have any domain knowledge to Correct. carry forward into the future. That kind of compounds on itself. Would you agree? Yep. Yep. No, I've watched it's um you asked to talk. We'll talk about a client, a great example of this soon enough when you ask about it. But like it's crazy, like the decisions people make that are like have no rational thought. It's emotional decisions that they like try to figure out. And it's just like, you know, everybody asks us about whatever the newest hot thing is. Now it's AI. And funny enough, little tangent, but you asked also our differentiator. One thing we did was one of our differentiators is that we've grown 4,500 brands. We have a lot of visibility into what works, what doesn't. But that's all anecdotal. Like we have access, but like that's all people just looking. So what we did over the past eight years, I started 
putting all this data that we we're collecting into a repository and anonymizing it. So we now at this point have over 8,000 companies marketing data running through our pipes in real time. We built a layer on top of it called Hawk AI. And we basically are able to plug in an individual company, benchmark them against their industry across all media KPIs. And now we're adding email marketing and SMS. We have Google Analytics in there, all Shopify data. So we can see the revenue data, marketing data, and actually know exactly like your click-through rate is 20% below market. So something is wrong with your creative, your copy, or your targeting. Like that is not good. We need to fix your click-through rate. Like we know exactly what KPI is missing and literally nobody else has that. Google is the only one that ha may have some of that data and they're never going to let them use it for this right. type of purpose. So we are the only one that you, we have that level of data and can actually access it. Yeah. I I do have a couple of questions about that, uh, sure. that proprietary software that you built at Hawk, but maybe we take a step back and it sounds sure. like we're... Uh, you're still super in the weeds. Like I got yeah. an email from your partner team this week. We were we were talking about standing up like a disco feed in the post-purchase experience, which I uh -huh. think is such an awesome use case. But yeah. if you imagine like uh, a cookware brand, for example, selling pots and pans, being able yeah. to layer on like complementary products yeah. with that home meal kits or yeah. Uh, you know, kitchen utensils, for example, yeah. um, of their complementary brands, like. Yep. I just absolutely love that use case. And your team seems really eager to help us figure out how we would stand that up. Yeah. You were on great. that email. Like I was shocked to see you on that email thread. So oh, no, I, I, funny <laughs> enough, um, again, I'm a pretty transparent guy that I've worked harder the past year than I've ever worked. And I work like, you know, it, it, I, I, yeah, the feedback I get in the market, I've at, actually went through a course where I had to go ask like 10 of our biggest partners what they think of when they think of me. And thankfully, number one's actually that I'm somewhere between fair and honest and accountable. Like that was cool. That was the feedback I got. So I am going to plug that. But the other <laughs> one I get is that I'm a consummate hustler. Like I'm always going, always moving, always. And that being said, the past year has been harder than any other year work-wise because the economic shift, like we're a month to month marketing agency and everybody's the, the entire media of the country is telling everyone, Oh, everyone needs to cut, 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 cut. Right. Well, <laughs> when you're trying to decide what's easy to cut and we've pitched ourselves as easy to cut, I'm not saying that we actually didn't lose that many clients. We just had a lot of people pull their budgets back significantly. So yeah. like people, thankfully what I've seen is like marketing has gone from a nice to have. That's the first thing that goes in a recession to like, it's not the lifeblood, especially in e-commerce. You can't just cut it, but a lot of people got scared and pulled back. And so we've been grinding to just make sure we maintain the business and we, you know, figure out how to navigate a tough time because my, what I've been preaching to my team is like, if we've not, if we're now a year into all this crap, if we're, if when, as we figure this out and, you know, modify the way we operate and stay on top of it and get through it. When this ends and people are back to proactivity, we're going to be, and I've watched this with other businesses, like it's going to be really fun because if we stick to our disciplines that we had to create in a tough time, when it's, when it, the you know, sun shines and we're making hay again, it just goes nuts. And so that's really what I've been emphasizing. Like we're not in any danger as a business, but it slowed down. And so I was like, okay, well, what do we need to do when things slow? Cause we never had to deal with that. Like we were flat year over year last year, our average growth has been 80%. Like it was a big shift. So it was like, okay, let's figure this out. So yeah, no, I'm fully in the weeds working with our team. And again, I work from home. So I'm like sitting here on my laptop, grinding with the team and then playing with my daughter. And for now that existence kind of nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. It's a good balance for sure. Uh, Mariah yeah. and I are like two doors down in phone booths today nice. in our office, but that's only because we had an all hands this morning and yeah. uh, we come into the office that's a mile away from my house. Like 
once a month. Nice. <laughs> yeah, we have 42, we're, we have people in 42 states and five countries. So wow. we, wow. and yeah, and at a 250. So it's not like, like, that's a lot of different locations for, you know, a decent amount of people, but like the average of a guest would be like five, six people per location. Like we're not concentrated at all. Yeah. So having offices, like I, we have a six person, we work in Santa Monica for 250 people and we have a two person, we work in New York and, uh, I, and then my, my family's has a waste and real estate business. I use that as our address. And I, if I need a conference room, I go use that cause I don't use it that often. Cause that's down the street in Santa Monica. So you gotta, you know, keep that creativity flowing through all <laughs> aspects of the business. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, so since you're st- still so in the weeds, I did want to ask you about a recent project that you were involved in at Hawk that you're really excited yeah. about on the client side. Yeah, no, it, I mean, I, I won't name them because this is ridiculous, but we had grown a company over the past few years from like, they went from, uh, they started with us at 30 grand a month in revenue. Okay. And I, some things that they got, some press sort of benefits and stuff, we ended up in with us, we, like, this is actually a good example. First time I met them, I wanted to work with them. I liked what they were building. It was, again, tiny business. And they're like, we need to rebuild our website. I'm like, well, we can build you a Shopify site. We can do it like this, this, this. And they're like, oh, and they were based uh, in a different state far enough away that they're like, well, we found this local team. They say we should be on Magento. We're going to go with them. Three months later, they're in my office back in LA. They're visiting um, on a press tour and they're in tears, both its husband, wife partners. And because the company had taken them for 250 grand, built no website, it didn't work. And they had a bunch of press about to hit and the site was just going to crash. So we grinded, got their site done, built it and launched it before all the press hit on Shopify, which is fully scalable. This is eight years, seven seven or eight years ago. I think seven, maybe, um, and grinded and got it done and great, like crazy success. They skyrocketed with the press. We then took over marketing. We grew them. And over the next few years, we grew them to, uh, they ended up becoming a $60 million business by end of 21. Oh my God. So yeah, great, great story. He calls me and goes, Hey, so I'm hiring this new CEO and CMO so I can step back a little bit. And they want to bring in their own agency. So we're going to have to part ways. And I'm like, I mean, and it happens, but I'm like, yeah. all right, are we doing anything wrong? He's like, yeah. no, I'm like, are we charging you too much? No. I'm like, so it's not broken, but you're fixing it. Like, just to be clear, like, this seems yeah. like how long have we, and I'm like, you did this once you went to another agency, you had a disaster, you came to us. It's been great for years and it's still growing like crazy. Like there's nothing wrong and you're yeah. going to, Okay. And like, there was no argument. Guy was kind of hard-headed. So fired us, uh, but forgot to take us out of his Google Analytics. So we just kept an eye on it. Yeah. And that company went from a 60 million run rate to a 20 million run rate in about six months. Just What? Um, Do you and, know what they did? Any insight? Yeah, the new CEO and CMO decided to go full discount brand. So they cut, everything was constant discounts to try to juice it. Their agency, we, we found this out. So they came back eight months later. So what we found out was their agency had was just horrible, had run no good campaigns. The only campaigns they had that were generating positive ROI were the campaigns they left on from us <laughs> from eight months before that hadn't been uh, uh, optimized or anything for eight months. Those were still their best performers. Um, and so we brought them back. And within four months, we were able to get them back to a 60 million run rate. So it's like, oh we just... God. 
I have a great team. Like I didn't do anything, by the way. I just yelled at the guy and told him to come back. Like, it, like I didn't actually do the work. We have a, we just like at this point, we have guys that have been with us, like our head of Facebook, our head of search, our head of like our, you know, our team is just so good that it's like, yeah, we are going to run the best pro- practices. And all we have to do is run the best practices. And if you have a good product, which they do, it works. And yeah. if you don't have a good product, marketing becomes pretty impossible. So we were able to turn it around very quickly. And that, that's been the most recent cool one because I basically told them like, soon enough, that'll be a published case study. Cause I'm like, yeah. like, I'm like, this was the dumbest, dis- like you couldn't have made a dumber decision. And it, hurt, I mean, it hurt the business in way, a lot in other ways because when you dip like that, like businesses aren't built to decline 60% in a year. Like you end up with a lot of problems. And so they're still working on some of those, but we were able to get it back because yeah, again, it's like, People think what we do is a commodity because there's so many people selling it. It is far from that. Yeah. And, I, and I have to explain this a lot to people. It's like, you know, they'll be like, well, you're charging, you know, whatever, let's say, depending on the client, you're charging 10% of media spend. These guys say they'll do it for nine. I'm like, okay, so let's do the math here. Let's say you're spending a hundred grand a month. You're you're talking, okay, so we're going to charge you 10 grand. They're going to charge you nine grand. So a thousand bucks. Well, that hundred grand a month, if that doesn't turn into at least like 400, 500 grand in revenue, it doesn't pencil for your business. So now you're going to go with a company and save a thousand dollars that's supposed to be making you $500,000. And that's the decision part. Like make sure we can perform. This number shouldn't matter at all. And we deal with that a lot where people think it's a commodity, but it's like, you know, the difference, like marketing is an infinite opportunity cost. Like there is always, you can do more and better always. We like there's we're we always talk we talk about the six out of ten rule at Hawk. Like we're always a six out of ten. And compared to other people, we're an A plus. But in terms of where we could be, there's always huge amounts of room to improve on everything we're doing. We've talked about that since the beginning of the business, and we know that that's the case. And so making a decision to go with someone to save a couple grand on what needs to be a you know mid six figure outcome is crazy to me. But people don't think that way and they constantly make those kind of decisions. And so yeah, that's been something we try to coach against too. Love that story. Uh, yeah. No, it was great. It was, and it was exciting because I, yeah. I had no idea if we could save it. I was like, I think so. We're looking at their ads. We're like, looks, like, looks like if we just turn off all this crap and then re- you know, invest in this and optimize it, we should be good. And that's exactly what happened. Sure enough. That's awesome. Um, okay. One more hot question. Then I want to get to trends and talk sure. about the Forbes article a little bit. Um with all the success you've seen on the agency side, what kind of propelled you into building a software solution and a VC firm? Um, you know, is it were these two were these two kind of side businesses an agent to feed the agency to continue growing, or uh, sort of how did you think about that? And also, yeah. with an update on where each are today. Yeah, it's all compliments. So you know, the data business is like, what do I think will uh, over time augment or disrupt us? Like it will be marketing AI. And this is, I launched that thankfully before ChatGPT, but ChatGPT was not far behind. So now everything's AI and it pisses me off because that wasn't (laughs) the intent. Um, But uh, the good news is we're getting offers for tons of money, just which we're not raising, but we're getting offers because everyone's like, oh, AI here. Um, But uh, the idea was, again, eight years ago, I had a great meeting. I was on the board of a nonprofit called XPRIZE, which like invented the first private space flight that became Virgin Galactic and all this cool stuff. A lot longer story there, but the founders are very much about like uh, exponential innovation, disruption, like what's going to disrupt your business. I was on their advisory board. I was like, and they're like, we think it's going to be freelancers. 
and the whole freelance economy is going to be really interesting. I was like, have you ever run a business with 15 freelancers running your marketing? Like, good luck. That's a yeah. nightmare. Um, I don't care what platform comes out. Like, that's not going to work. You need something consistent. You need to know that if your email marketer quits, someone's behind them and not, I have to go scramble because freelancers are not reliable. I've had, I've had, everyone's had the experience of a freelancer saying, I'm done working. I'm going to move to Bali. Like happens all the time. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't think that was going to be it, but I was like, AI is going to be really compelling. And so I started studying it like again, eight, nine years ago um, and how it would affect us. And I was like, we need like to build that you need to have so much data running on marketing. So, you know, in new, in real time, what's happening. Cause you can't base it on historic data. For example, like all the Facebook changes the past two years, if I was basing it on how Facebook ran two years ago, well, that's all bullshit. So like you need to be able to be up to speed on how things are running now. So you need that AI to be educated ongoing in what the, those KPIs are. It was like, so we should start with this vast database, start building in as many pipes as we can. And then from there we can build insights into it. Like, Hey, this is the benchmark. This is why. So like, I mentioned this earlier, but if your click-through rate is below market, well, it could be your copy, your creative, or your target audience. So now let's look at other KPIs that would indicate those and like start to dive in deeper and then automate that insight to be like, you know, your conversion rate on your website is, you know, 20% below market. Uh, we looked at your load speeds, this, that, that. It looks like your site's loading at half the speed of other sites. So you should fix your site speed. That's the problem. So it allows for focus on marketing tactics and really skips a lot of the strategy work to figure out where to go. It's like, this is what you need to do. So we built that. And so that's, and those insights are becoming more and more robust. And now you have something like ChatGPT you can plug into that adds natural language processing and makes it more conversational. And all of a sudden you basically have an automated marketing strategist. And so that's where it's going. That's what's coming uh, on it. And um, I say that publicly, we're working on it, but um, yeah, once we get there, that's when we're really going to make that push. So for now we've been keeping it uh, really inexpensive to sign up. We have 2000 paid customers on the platform in six months. Um, we're building pipes into a bunch of partners now so that like, if you get on, um, like we're doing an official partner with Merit Post, where if you sign up with Merit Post, you get AI and you can actually see all your insights on their platform, pulling in their data. So yeah, just continuing to spin that up while we build out. And uh, it's fun because we also ended up with a bunch of hedge funds approaching us for the aggregate data because it's actually a good predictor of Facebook, Google, Shopify's Ooh. public data. And they did all their audits and we have like a 99% correlation. So what I found is we already have statistical significance that this data is uh, correct enough that it is enough to benchmark against, et cetera. So we're there, we're good building that out. The venture side was more just I never planned on angel investing, but my uh, two friends of mine a year into business were pivoting their business to e-commerce from media and said, we want you to invest. And I said, I don't angel invest. So it wasn't a question. You're investing, but uh, you tell us it can be a small check, but you're on the cap table. I was like, all right, fine. Wrote a small check and that company became a multi-billion dollar company. So like, I should do more of this. Um, And so I started angel investing. What's that? How do I find the next one of those? Yes, yeah. <laughs> which is the game. So I, I continued to angel invest and uh, that did really well. And about three years in, we hired someone to help me manage it. And uh, we had an, uh, our average returns were 11X on our angel investments. And he was like, we should do more of this. I'm like, I don't have infinite cash. I wish I did. That'd be fun, but I don't. And he's like, well, let's raise a fund. So we raised our first fund. 
uh, came up with a little more discipline of a thesis. Cause like this, I'm wearing the angel city hat. Like I own a piece of a soccer team. Like I invest in some rent, which by the way, might be one of the best investments I've made turns out cause they've crushed it. But, wow. um, the, uh, I angel invest a little more flippantly depending on the times. And so <laughs> I was like, if I'm managing other people's money, we need to be disciplined. So that's when we really focused on marketing technology, e-commerce tech. We found some great technologies. We were the first investor in postscript, which has just crushed it the past four years. And to Alex, the president and co-founder's credit, he would literally chase me down at Shop Talk and was like, I need to talk to you. I need to talk. It's like, what? He's like, we need to uh, work with you on SMS. I'm like, you know, we had just invested in a different SMS platform, which I won't name for their sake, but we didn't like it very much. And I was like, we actually, they rightfully, or not rightfully, they, uh, in a very nice way, they gave us our money back. Cause we're like, we're not meshing here. What, can we just get our investment out? And they gave us our money back. And then we went in on PostScript and uh, they did everything we wanted to. We onboarded a ton of customers and it's been off to the races. And so we still, to this day, do a ton of, we send them, like we get SMS clients and we send a lot of them to PostScript and they built a great tool. So a lot of those. So when you ask why with all this, it's it's all to feed each other. It's like, it's, you know, it's all, there's the word synergy is such a cliche, but it really is just a ton of synergy where it's like the data tool is fed because we constantly have new data coming into Hawk. So that gets fed with more data, more customers. We, you know, automatically email the leads we get at Hawk. So it helps each other, vice versa. That data is incredible with how we perform at Hawk. So they work together. The fun side, same thing. We're investing in the tools and softwares we wish existed for our clients so we can do better work. And what what it started with was Clavio. We were Clavio's first partner when they they offered me to invest at a five million dollar valuation. I think their last valuation was ten billion. So, you know, yeah, and we did invest later on. We didn't invest in that round. I wish, but um, but we were their partner from the beginning. We were their biggest lead source. We just helped build that business in a lot of ways. And I was literally the reference call from their private equity fund when they took on money from Summit Partners at a four billion dollar valuation. So like close relationship. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, we really should have gotten in early. And now it's like, now we have, and now we are that partner. And so while I'm out hustling, speaking, et cetera, you know, even sitting on this podcast, mentioning PostScript and Clavio, like right. I just plugged two investments of mine. Like, it's like, that's, it, it's all, it's all, uh, again, I, I, I'm trying to think of a better word than synergy, but it just all works together so well that uh, people ask how I split my time. I'm like, it's all the same work. Like, I'm, very I'm cohesive. To, yeah, exactly. Cohesive. Let's let's go with that. Word, I got you. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, so, are you selling? You know, are you selling the the software separately from Hawk as well, though, or do you have to be a Hawk? Yeah, client? and funny enough, people are, we have I think we have like a dozen agency major agencies using it. Oh, cool. So, yeah, we're we let it. I, I we made I made the decision of like, do I keep this as a core proprietary product or do I make this something in the market? And like, I wanted to put it out to the market. Like we obviously get the use of it, but there's a lot of benefits in having more and more people use it. Like it's a definitely a, a, a critical mass kind of game yeah. and we have it now, but that's also because other agencies have onboarded hundreds of customers too. Right. Very cool. I have to ask, um, you mentioned shop talk. No, and I are going this year. Are you going? Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm speaking on Wednesday. Okay. We'll send you our events uh, cool. Sunday night and Monday night and uh but yeah it'd be great to meet in person man yeah that'd be awesome yeah I'll be there I actually have I'm getting too old for this but I have a bachelor party Friday Saturday in Vegas okay so I have a bachelor party the week before (laughs) in Vegas wait no that's what I mean oh you do the weekend before yeah (laughs) well it's not like it's like the week before like the first oh no I I mean like the two days before shop talk right mine's the week before got it got it got it 
I am so happy I have a little buffer because no, I am literally staying. I'm just staying. Like I'm in the hotel from Friday to Wednesday. I'm like, right. I, and I hate Vegas. So like, <laughs> the, the funny, yeah. But, um, they were planning this bachelor party again. We're all in our late 30s now, and I was, and it was like pool party club, pool party club, pool party club, pool. And I'm like, guys, I literally responded to the email. I was like, guys, we're all old as fuck now. Like. <laughs> let's own it. Like maybe we do some other cool shit. Like let's go race go, some cars or something. Yeah, go golf one walk. day or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they agreed, so we adjusted. Um. Nice. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. Hopefully, I see you on Sunday because I just want to know what kind of state you're in. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be all right. I don't drink anymore, so I'll be totally okay, fine. Gotcha. I, but I feel like the, it's funny. I, I was in Vegas for CES, and I'm like, I feel like just the air there makes you feel like shit. I don't know. And I know they pump oxygen in, but you would think that'd be the opposite. But like. I come back and I just don't feel good regardless of, you know, even if all I do is go have some meetings, work out and stay in my hotel room, I still don't feel good there. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, yeah, the smoke might just be, it might be memory too. It might be an emotional <laughs> reaction to my. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. PTSD. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, For a second there, I was like, what if you guys were going to the same bachelor party? That, that would have been, been funny. Insane. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Possible. I've had those small world experiences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's funny um all right 2023 you i was telling you before i just read your report article that i think was published three days ago and you had a very unique perspective (laughs) not just from like you know what i read uh in the publications but even guests of ours on the podcast this year talking about the macroeconomic environment what we can expect you call 2023 the year of business recovery so definitely a different angle Tell us about that uh, and how. Yeah, so, and this is where it's, yeah, it's important to understand the bifurcation between, I I just say, to say it, businesses and employees, employment and business function. So, like, we spent the, businesses spent the last year tightening the belt, cutting back, cutting back, while consumer spending and employment hasn't gone anywhere. So, people are still spending money, but businesses have way less expenses. Like, we know how this works out, right? Like, that's. That And so what I look at is the only reason people are scared right now, I'd say two reasons. One is raising interest rates. Two is the media constantly reminding people of raising interest rates. Um, the idea that five, five and a half percent interest rates are going to collapse the economy just means you have not paid attention to any historic economic factors. <laughs> like raising rates does scare people and shake people up. But we saw last year, like everyone just freeze. You can't freeze for like, so the, and I've done a lot of look at this. The Great Recession lasted 18 months, meaning 2008. 18 months was that recession, okay? We've already watched people pulling back in the economy diving and being volatile for over a year at this point. It started in November of 21, actually, is when the market started declining. But let's just say it was January of 22 is when it really started to slow down. And we're also the canary in the coal mine. We see it really early, like everyone cutting budgets, everyone trying to do this. That happened in 2008, that decline lasted a few months. It didn't last, like, this is longer already. And so the idea that it's going to actually keep dropping is just, it, it would be, that we, then we're accepting that we're going into a Great Depression because of a rate increase to 5%. Doesn't, and it, this is also important to understand. 2008 was caused because rate increases and then adjustable rate mortgages. Yeah. You know how, what percentage of uh, mortgages are adjustable now? Three. Okay. 3% of mortgages are adjustable in the United States. Other countries different. Like I think uh, Europe is like 50 still, but the U S made that pretty much impossible to give because of what happened, you know, 15 years ago. So 
that's not going to repeat. And I've just watched, like, I, I've seen Larry Summers speak twice now. I saw him speak in November and I saw him speak last week. He, nothing was consistent. He was completely wrong in November. He's the smartest guy. He's literally the guy that would be able to say, call this. And he can't call it. No one can call it. So when I look at this, I go, it's the same thing as like in 2021, when everyone's like, Bitcoin's going to 250 grand. It's like, is it? Like, is that really what's going to happen? And don't get me wrong. I own a little crypto, but I was like, that, that, I, sure, I'll have I it. I think Kathy Wood is still saying it's going to be a million dollars. In yeah. And didn't, Tim Draper just keeps pushing back the year. Like, you yeah, know, it'll right. be 250. Now it's 2020. It might be this year, he says. But like, and who? The, the truth is people love making grandstands, including what I just did. I put out an article. This is what I think. Um, because you you benefit a lot when you're right, and there's no real recourse when you're wrong. And everybody wants to call a recession, but what this reminds me of in 2004, and I didn't know this till I did the research, because 2004 I was in high school. I didn't really pay attention to the economy. But in 2004, the same thing happened. The media was calling a recession. Everyone slowed down. Everyone started cutting because they would just post a uh, dot-com bust, and it was but it was 2004 and they're like, it's coming. This is where it's going to happen again. Da, da, da. And everyone gets scared. Da, da, da. And then it never happened. There was no recession. It took 2008 happened. Four years later is when it actually hit. And so with this, again, I think it's like, I keep watching it. Like what, like, will the housing market slow down? Maybe, but here's the issue is now that people locked in these rates, like the, they're just not going to sell. So I think there's going to be low inventory and low buyers, but that just means it equals out and the prices stay the same. So, okay, cool. Uh, what we did see last year was so many people bought so many goods in 21. There was such a spike. Like you look at any graph, it's like da, 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 21, 22. Yeah, right. And it's like 23 isn't here. It's just you do, it's a trend line with right. this little mountain in the middle and that little mountain is done. So when you're looking at, and this is what caused a lot of this fear is when you look at 22 over 21 numbers, which we just, we're still in because it's quarter late. So Q1, we're looking at 22 Q4 over 21 Q4. You're looking at a year when we printed 40% more cash in the economy and nobody could go anywhere. And so just spent money online. Like, yeah, it's hard to compare to those years. <laughs> and, and like we are, we were, did all the marketing for like five, six years for Diamondback, Raleigh, all these bike companies. They're all big holding company. And I bought four mountain bikes between me, my brother, my business partner, and one of my best friends. So we could go mountain bike during COVID because like that was a good thing to do. Like you spend money, like I didn't buy another mountain bike the next year. Right. So everyone made these big purchases during that period that made everyone look great. And everybody wants to draw a trend line. It's like, everything did this. It's going to keep doing this. It's just going to go to the moon. Like, this is great. And no one wanted to think rationally, like, be cautious because it's hard. You know, as a founder, you want to be optimistic. You're like, this is great. This is a trend. We're going to keep going. And so when that didn't happen, then people start doing the other thing. Like, oh, this is a trend. Maybe we're going to go. You're in the, you can't help but your head do this. If we drop 20%, which the average Shopify site last year dropped 20% of revenue. We dropped 20% this year, we're going to drop 20% next year. So everyone goes shit and starts cutting back, overdoing it. And some of it becomes a little self-fulfilling. You end up declining a little bit because you cut back on marketing, you cut back on acquisition. But then uh, you start to, this is like Q2 is when people should start to realize like, wait, 23 over 22 isn't such a disaster. Inflation is down. And mark, you know, revenues are starting to climb again. People are starting to see growth. We're seeing it now. Again, we're the canary in the coal mine. The like velocity of people like starting to go, oh, wait, things aren't a disaster. Maybe we're okay. And that's all it takes. Once people start to go and then earnings come out next quarter and things start to look a little better, it goes. The only caveat to that, because you did say it, I published that three days ago, <laughs> yesterday and the day, yeah, it was yesterday, the day before. 
uh, Powell came out and said they may continue to raise interest rates. Yeah. So there is a little bit of a, I didn't think that was going to happen because they had literally stuck to their own plan for a year and a half. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, but it also has to do with this trailing data problem where they're looking at data from six months ago. Like, I don't know that people are continuing to raise their prices right now because I don't think anyone accepts it. Right. Um, really interesting take. Definitely unique from the other that yeah. we've talked to. Um, if you're a brand and we only have like two minutes here, so really quick, if you're a brand, how should you take that perspective into account uh, when you're planning for the year? Stop watching the news and run your own numbers. Like that's the biggest thing is like when you make decisions because of headlines on CNN or Fox or whatever side you want to watch, like you're already fucking up. Like look at your data. If you're, if you're making money off your marketing, stop worrying about what's coming. Like work with what you have right in front of you. Again, Hawk AI, it's 250 bucks a month. You can go see how you compare to the market and that would be super easy. And we'll always run a free audit and tell you what we think too. But like it, people also forget in a recession, it's not binary. It's not like everything goes to zero and we're all done. It's like people still spend money. It's just less. So uh, figuring out where you can find profitable growth, being efficient, all that super important. But like taking your foot off the gas is a self-fulfilling prophecy. But I've realized through all this, watching thousands of companies we've worked with, the people that fail are generally the people that give up. It's self-inflicted. Like you, if you have a good product, you will be fine. Like there's, that's why there's Coca-Cola and these companies have been around forever. I'm not saying I'm not endorsing Coke. I'm just saying like <laughs> yeah. companies are fine because like bit ever flow, just maintain your expenses and like, make sure you're not getting over your skis, but pulling back is usually a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome, man. Love yep. that perspective. Um, Really appreciate the time today. Really quick last question. You've had yep. an insane career. It's been awesome so far. You're continuing, continuously hustling to, to make it even better. What's one or two things that's like helped you get to where you are today for any, any of our listeners? Uh, you know, I, I hate to give make your head bigger, but I met my wife a month after I started the company. And I think the lack of distraction, just a good supportive partner that like has been there that's through and good. through. Yeah. It's really, yeah, we it came up in a conversation yesterday. It's just like, it makes it so much easier when that's like, that's there. Like it's a solid, a consistent kind of thing that you can, that it supports what you're doing. Um, and then I, I think the best, the best times I have, like really try to figure out how to make it fun. Like, cause running a business is fucking hard, like yeah. really hard. I just saw Alexis Ohanian from Reddit just was on stage last week at this conference I was at and he's like, He's a VC now and he's, it was a VC conference. And they're like, how do you feel about being a VC versus operator? He's like, oh, it's fucking easy. Like, it's like yeah. being an operator sucks. Being a VC is easy. Like, so like knowing that, like running a business is hard. All it is is putting out fires and dealing with problems, especially as you grow and it doesn't go away ever. So find a way to make it fun, make it enjoyable, like super important because if not, you will burn out. And when it gets tough, you're not going to look for a, an opportunity to fix it. You're going to look for an opportunity to get out. Yeah, absolutely. Love it, man. This was yep. fantastic. Seriously, you brought yeah. some today Thank for sure. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. Um, I was just like sitting absorbing all of it. It was so great. Thanks, Eric. <laughs> this is fun. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Eric. And looking forward to uh, meeting in person in Vegas here. Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone.